It's only recently that we've come to understand neurodiversity and everything that it encompasses. And here Peter Shankman talks about the chemical that a neurodiverse brain craves. There is an addictive quality towards getting, when you're ADHD, an addictive quality towards getting dopamine that you've always needed, but have never had. And that addictive quality that can make someone with ADHD do impulsive things, things that may not make sense to other people. And as he realized that he had ADHD, Peter discovered what drove him. I think a lot of it comes from comes from two factors. The smaller of the two is 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 not having a choice. When I pivoted away from AOL and I was, you know, started, okay, I'm going to start a PR firm. What choice did I have? I wanted to move out of my parents' basement. Uh, I had moved out when I worked at AOL. I had to move back in when I left. What choice did I have? Right. So I did that. And then the bigger, potent chemical of this reaction is I stopped caring what other people thought. And I was in the process at that point of, of learning how to not care so much about what other people thought. When you finally just snap, you sort of have that moment where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to care. I'm going to do my thing. Whether it works or not, I'm going to answer to me. Answering to yourself can be empowering and terrifying, particularly as you're trying to find your way, and especially when you're trying to help others find theirs. This is Timeless Leadership, where we explore the values and principles that drive extraordinary leaders. We look for the timeless virtues that are just as relevant in the 21st century as they were in the first century. Universal truths that will help make us better versions of ourselves. Hi there, and welcome back to Timeless Leadership. I'm your host, Scott Monty. I'm so glad you've been able to join me today and that you're carving out a few moments of your life to learn about some of these principles that go into Timeless Leadership. Today's an interesting conversation. I've known Peter quite a while, and you might be wondering, well, why are we talking about ADHD and neurodiversity? And the fact of the matter is, there are more leaders out there I'm sure you know a handful yourself who are neurodiverse, who have ADHD, who struggle with executive functioning and focusing. Maybe you're one of those people. And just because you may think and act differently than other people doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you a poor leader. It just means that you need to understand how your brain works and how to make it work for you. So I hope you'll go on this journey with me, with Peter, to understand some of the factors that go into it, some of the techniques that Peter has discovered, and the self-reflection that it takes for a leader of any kind to become successful at what they do. In the meantime, I hope you're subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter at TimelessTimely.com. 
You can leave comments there. You can get in touch with me. Simply shoot me an email at timeless at scottmonte.com. Would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about leadership, if you have any concerns about how you fit in, maybe you'd like to schedule a call with me, have a free discussion, and assess your ability to lead, I would love to be able to have that opportunity with you. So just check out the links in the show notes, subscribe, and uh, let's get this going. Peter Shankman is a top keynote speaker in marketing, social media, customer service, and neurodiversity in the workplace. The New York Times has called Peter a rock star who knows everything about social media, and then some. He's an entrepreneur with three startup launches and exits under his belt, recognized worldwide for radically new ways of thinking about the marketing, PR, and customer experience, particularly when it comes to ADHD and the new neurodiverse economy. Peter is also a six-time best-selling author. His latest two books, Faster Than Normal and The Boy with the Faster Brain, capture the essence of what it's like to live with ADHD. When he's not jet-setting around the world, Peter lives in New York City with his dog Waffle and his daughter Jessa. Peter Shankman, welcome to Timeless Leadership. I'm thrilled to be here, but I, I'd much prefer if that music played throughout the entire interview. <laughs> I think we'd get very few listens if that were the case. <laughs> um, hey, hey, let's let's share a little backstory because you and I have known each other for decades. But when I used to call you, and maybe it still happens, but your phone wouldn't ring directly to you; it would go over into hold music. Essentially, yep. tell people what that was. It was the Benny Hill theme, and it was it. it if nothing else in the world, it captured exactly who you were about to speak with. Yeah, but that's, is, that's a, that is perfect. Quintessential, Peter, 100%. That is. And for, for folks interested, that uh, song that Benny Hill chose for his theme music is Yakety Sax. Yep. You know who it's by? Uh, Boots Randolph. Boots Randolph. Very good. All right. We'll have a, a wonderful copy of the home game for you after the show, Peter, <laughs> and a case of turtle wax. But um, yeah, that, that song has become synonymous with uh, Benny Hill doing the sped up chases around uh, the sets, uh, usually outside. And it perfectly encapsulates your energy. And uh, that's, that's why I got the Yakety Sax knockoff for your uh, intro music there. So, and, and look, uh, customized intros for my guest is my love language. So there you go, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's journey back, uh, Peter. Uh, talk to us about how you got your start in business and where things eventually led you. I was supposed to be a fashion photographer and shooting for Vogue and Playboy. Um, I wasn't supposed to be doing any of this. I was I was in graduate school studying fashion and portrait photography in the early '90s after I got out of Boston University. Um, with 18 credits to go, I lost my financial aid in grad school. The government sent me a letter that said, your parents make too much money. We're taking away your financial aid. And um, I sent the government a letter that said, my parents do make too much money. They, they keep it. And the government didn't find that funny. And uh, <laughs> I remember I, I moved home. I, I drove back from, from Santa Barbara, where I was going to grad school, on like a 90-degree, gorgeous, sunny day. Um, get in the car. The sun's coming over the 101. 
and take it to the limit comes on by, by the Eagles. And I'm like, the universe just hates me. Um, <laughs> driving back One more back, time. Driving back to New York where it's, where it's cold and snowy and, and, and the quintessential California driving song comes on as I'm leaving. This is, this is bullshit. And, um, you know, I went home and I, I was living in my parents' basement at the time. And, um, about a month into it, early 1995, I'm hanging out, <laughs> hanging out in the Melrose Place TV gossip chat room on America Online, um, <laughs> which <laughs> right there, I, I, it just end the interview. I mean, what possibly more could I say that's any, any better than the Melrose Place TV gossip chat room on AOL? Um, and this is for those for those young ones listening to your to your interview. This, the, AOL was the internet, right? There, there was no Wi-Fi. There was no going to Starbucks. There was, there was AOL. I mean, it's CompuServe, but you know, we weren't cool if you were on CompuServe. You're cool if you were AOL. And um, someone in that chat room said, you know, Peter, you have a journalism degree from Boston University. My company's trying to start a newsroom. Why don't you send me your resume? I said, sure. I have no experience. Nothing. No, I never had a real job. This will be great. Not a problem. I learned that sarcasm doesn't translate well online. And uh, a month later, I was hired by AOL to help start the AOL newsroom, to launch AOL News. Um uh, if you remember, welcome, you've got mail, and then that little newspaper icon, the Today's News, and we built that. And it was it was this unbelievable trial by fire, and it was the most incredible experience. It was two two and a half years of, of just if it worked, we did it again. If it didn't work, we didn't do it again. And um, I remember I uh, I left because AOL had they were growing up, and it was their first ever mass layoff, and they laid off about ninety percent of their content people in. Three hours. Oof. 8 a.m. We had a job. 11 a.m. We're sitting in the parking lot. It was like I, I joke. You'll you'll appreciate this because you're you're a man of, of taste. Um, it was the uh, the Andy Cap comic strip where <laughs> where his wife walks in and they get in this massive brawl. Right, and all you see is smoke and like the occasional arm. And that and, was and, and rolling pin. And There's rolling to be a rolling pin, pin, pin in there somewhere. 8 a.m. We're in the office chilling out. 11 a.m. We've gone through the smoke. We're sitting on the floor of the parking lot. Going, what the hell just happened? Um, I always, I always, I always called it that. And, uh, yeah, I moved back home and, um, spent about I don't know, a year or so consulting. It was the start of the dot-com boom and 98, I said, you know, I could probably do this better. And I, I launched a public relations agency with absolutely zero, absolutely zero experience. I had no idea how to do that whatsoever. And, um, and why did you decide on PR at that point? I spent two and a half years at AOL explaining to people what the newsroom was. Explaining to senators and congressmen and aides in Washington why we needed press passes for the Democratic Republican conventions, because in their mind, AOL was something you downloaded pictures of Pamela Anderson from. And I'm going in and saying, no, we are, this is where news is going. This is how you're going to get your information. You know, sure enough, what, five years later, 9 11 happened and, and I was proven right. Um, you know, everyone went to the internet because everything else was down. But it, it's one of those things where um, I knew how to talk. And, and AOL, if AOL taught me nothing else, it taught me that I knew how to talk to people. And, and it wasn't until about 20 years later that I had to learn how to listen. But at least by that point, I knew how to talk. And um, I figured that's what PR people do. And I started an agency. I called it the Geek Factory. Uh, figured it was, it was, you know, we were repping dot-coms. It was perfect for, for that. And, uh, yeah, we, we had Napster and Juno, uh, part of AOL, um, all these, all these incredible dot coms, tons of which you heard of, ton, more tons of which you hadn't, you know, all of whom got fifty million in revenue or fifty million in in, in in financing and VC money and needed to use it within eight hours and you know before they went bankrupt. And 
they'd hire us and we had incredible clients and it was a lot of fun. It was about two and a half, three years of running this agency. Um, it was amazing. And we were getting paid and, and, and having a good time and had about eight, 10 employees working for me. And um, <clears throat> I saw the writing on the wall and we we're seeing all the dot-coms start to, start to, start to bail. So in the, uh, the summer of 01, I sold it to, I sold the, the clients and the staff to a larger agency and I walked away. Um, okay, I did that. And the goal was to take a year off. And I packed a bag and I went to Asia. And um, about two and a half weeks into Asia, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be traveling through Vietnam and through everywhere. I'm on a beach in Phuket, Thailand, watching the sunrise going, this is incredibly beautiful and I am so goddamn bored. And I flew back to Tokyo and I, I called my mother from the airport in Tokyo. I said, I'm coming home. She goes, it's been two weeks. You're supposed to take a year. I said, you never taught me how to relax. And I slammed down the phone. And I got on the plane. And I came home. And um, yeah, I started consulting for several years. I, I was I was doing, uh, was repping, um, God, I was repping just the most random company. I was, I was representing at one point the Lutheran Church. Um, at another point, the largest distributor of adult pay-per-view on cable. Um, and well, that's a dichotomy right there. You no, know, I, and I have several jokes about it. Um, <laughs> several wonderfully long lasting. I mean, you're, you're, you're on your knees. You're hoping to be on your knees. I mean, there's so many, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I'm not I'm just going to stop, but yeah, I mean, thank they're, you. They're, this is a family show. Yeah. <laughs> you're shouting, Oh God, either way. I mean, it, okay. But it was, it was so, <laughs> it was a lot of fun and it really sort of honed my relationship with the press, with the media, um, and it, it started me honing my started, started the process of honing my relationship with myself because I I was I guess in my early thirties at that point I had the social acuity of a turnip um, had no idea at the time that I was neurodivergent um, just thought I was weird but I was making money right and as long as I could pay my rent at that point who cared yeah and it's, it it sounds like at every turn Peter you, you know you took an experience where. Um, you know, the, the end came before you were ready for it in some cases, and you were able to take your skill set and then focus it on something new. You know, your, your uh, content creation skills from grad school, took those and brought them to the AOL newsroom. Your knowledge of the media and press and, and needs out there for public relations, turned that to the agency and then the agency to consulting. So it seems like even though things seem bleak and directionless at time, you're able to kind of build on your experience and continue to point yourself in a direction that makes sense. I think a lot of it comes from <sighs> comes from two factors. The smaller of the two is 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 not having a choice. Right? I mean, mm. I remember when when I when I pivoted away from AOL and I was, you know, Okay, I'm going to start a PR firm. Um, what choice did I have? I wanted to move out of my parents' basement. Uh, I had moved out when I worked there. Well, I had to move back in when I left. What choice did I have, right? So I did that. And then the other, the more bigger potent chemical of this reaction is I stopped caring what other people thought. And that was actually a huge moment, a huge wake-up call because you spend so much of your life. I mean, your, your, your childhood your job as a child is to make friends and learn stuff. And usually in that order, you know, I'm watching my daughter now at 10 years old. I'm watching her, um, you know, saying, Oh, well my two best friends were talking yesterday and, and they saw me come over and they stopped talking. And were they talking about me? And this is what kids jobs are when they're kids. And, and it, for some reason we train them to do that. And it takes years to sort of undo that and to not, to stop caring. 
And I was in the process at that point of, of learning how to not care so much about what other people thought. And that, you know, again, that came from growing up undiagnosed ADHD and undiagnosed dyslexic and probably, <laughs> probably undiagnosed autistic and, and spending all that time thinking about all, you know, all the things I did and getting made fun of for every single thing because my brain was different. And when you finally just snap, right. And you, you, you have the, you know, the moment your, your villain origin story was, was born, you sort of have that moment. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to care. I'm going to do my thing. Whether it works or not, I'm going to answer to me. I'm not going to care. And that was really sort of my wake up call was, um, you know, I remember my, my father, my mother would always freak out when I said I was doing something new. My father had, uh, another word for it. He, it was the Jews don't mentality. Um, you know, dad, I'm getting my skydiving license. Peter, Jews don't skydive. Right. You know, dad, I'm, 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 I'm doing this crazy thing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this crazy. The dad, Jews don't, you know, Peter, Jews, it was always a joke. Right. And yet I did it. And, you know, I'm a licensed skydiver now, or 500 jumps. And, and it's that sort of, you learn not to care what other people think more. And then, like you said, subconsciously, you learn that you have a lot of talent and you can apply those to different things if you tweak a few things. And that's sort of what I've done all my life, whether that was, you know, my first PR firm, whether that was help a reporter out, whatever, it was always about that. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, maybe you had your, your finger on the pulse there for a bit. I, I've never heard Lutherans don't. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe you should have gone with that. Um, I remember when, when, when the, when the, when my, the first time it was put in print that I was a skydiver, it was put in print in the New York times. And I remember my parents, you know, were hugely pissed when they found out and then pissed about a month later when they went back to their temple for one of the high holiday, high holidays. And, um, Three or four. So I saw your son. He's a sky. That's interesting. <laughs> they come home and just berate me for that. <laughs> so you you mentioned uh, neurodiversity there as you were you were chatting. Um, I'm sure back when you were first diagnosed, we we didn't talk about neurodiversity as a term. Uh, you know, you were diagnosed as ADHD. Talk about that that process and and when that happened and um, what it began to help you focus on? I was diagnosed in my mid-30s, and I was diagnosed in a very funny way, and that I had a therapist that I've been seeing since my very late 20s. I'm still seeing him. Somebody like early 30s. And um, one day he just said, he says, so, you know, you never talk about your ADHD and, and what you do for it. I'm like, my what? He's like, you're ADHD. I'm like, I, I'm not ADHD. And he sort of looked at me, and he just, it literally, that class, of, really? <laughs> I'm like, I've never been diagnosed with ADHD. He's like, uh-huh. He's like, maybe you should do that. You know, and he was, he was floored because it was like clear as day to him. And so I remember I got, they had this test, you answer a hundred questions and you know, anything over like 24 of them, there's a possibility you're on that ADHD spectrum. And I answered like <laughs> any, any more, 97. Yeah, exactly. 97 of them were, 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 were in the right way. I'm like, Oh, well, how about that? But you know, it didn't really, everyone says, Oh, you get diagnosed. When you, when you feel like crap for six months and you go to the hospital and you're diagnosed with some sort of rare disease, everything makes sense because you, okay, that's why I feel like crap. All that getting diagnosed with ADHD did was make me able to put a name towards all the weird shit, weird shit I'd been doing all my life, right? Yeah. I was weird. I was weird Peter, Peter the strange one over there. Well, yeah, now I realize that, you know, why I skydive. I realize why I kept talking out of turn in school and getting in trouble and did the same thing in college and getting beaten up. And everything started to make sense in that I was searching for dopamine, 
right? Which should be, by the way, will be the title of my autobiography, Searching for Dopamine. But it was the premise that <laughs> everything I did was designed to give me the same thing that everyone else has and makes normally that I don't. So for me, it was getting in trouble because I'd talk at a turn in class, the class would laugh. And for that 0.5 seconds before I got sent to the principal's office, I'd feed <laughs> off that laughter. <laughs> it's no wonder that I speak in front of you know audiences like 20, 30,000 people now. Because if I felt great making 25 people laugh, imagine when you make 25,000 people laugh. Robin Williams was actually quoted about that when he was talking about – he was being interviewed about his drug addiction and – so it's not like, you know, you've gone to um, rehab several times, yet, yet you always seem to come back to cocaine. Or, you know, why is he said, you get off stage and you've just made 20 He said, do you know how powerful it is? You don't want that to end. And he's 100% right. Yeah. There is an addictive quality towards getting, when you're ADHD, an addictive quality towards getting the dopamine that you've always needed, but have never had. And or never had ready access to. And now you're starting to find ways to do that, whether that's negative ways, like getting in trouble in school or whatever, or positive ways, like speaking on stage or skydiving or running or whatever. You know, I, I remember I ran my first 5K. I crossed the finish line, nearly died. Most people checked that off their list. Nope, had to sign up for a marathon. You know, did my first marathon, crossed that off. Nope, had to sign up for an Ironman. You know, why suck at one sport when you could suck at three? And it's just sort of that's that's how I live, have I, I've always lived my life. There's never been a middle ground. My my catchphrase is I have, I have two speeds. I have namaste and I'll, I'll cut a bitch. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because uh, I have a daughter like that. And I've, I've told people this since her infant days. She has two speeds, fast forward and off. And I'm sure that's what it feels like to you. And uh, I, I don't talk about this a lot. I don't make it you know, part of my brand, but I don't shy away from it either. Uh, I have ADHD. And I was honored to be guest number two, I think, on your show, yes, Faster you Than Normal. Yes, yep. And and it's interesting because the two of us get together. And if, if people put us next to each other, they would never go, oh, yeah, they both have ADHD. Because, look, for anybody who's listening to this program right now on two times speed, that's too much, Peter. I mean, you, you need to slow Peter down, but you need to speed me up, which is, here's the problem. But they're two very different kinds of ADHD. So as you've written the book, Faster Than Normal, the subtitle there is Turbocharge Your Focus, Productivity, and Success with the Secrets of the ADHD Brain. And, of course, the podcast that you have, Faster Than Normal, Talk to me a little bit about what you've experienced in exploring this in yourself and with others and how it expresses itself differently. A few weeks ago, I was looking for – my daughter was looking for a brush that she had for her hair and I had no idea where it was or last time I'd seen it. So I – she said, maybe I use it in your bathroom. So I get her off to school. I come back to my, my house. I do some work. I'm like, all right, let me go into my bathroom and look for this thing. In the bathroom, I look for the thing. I start looking under the sink and the cabinets, and, and you know, it's, I don't find it, but I realize the cabinets are a mess. So I'm like, I should clean these cabinets. So I start cleaning the cabinets. The first thing I find is some hair dye from, that I bought during COVID for my daughter and I. We had nothing to do, right? And I'd used all the red, but I still had like some blue or green or whatever. I'm like, oh, I remember that stuff. Uh, two hours later, my hair's green. Cabinets are still a mess. <laughs> 
go to pick up my daughter five hours later. I'm like, look at my hair. She's like, did you find my brush? I'm like, oh, yeah. No. You know, the whole reason I went to the bathroom was to find your brush and I came out with green hair. Yeah. <laughs> that's ADHD. Um, the thing is, I used to get so angry at myself. Why can't you focus? Why can't, you know, why can you start and sell companies for millions of dollars and you can't make your marriage work? Right. And, you know, it's this, it's this. ADHD is paradoxical because you absolutely positively 100% believe you could do something. You have no doubt that you'll do it and you can do it. And then you forget to do it. Or you know that you can go into a room. I can go into 20,000 person audience and wow every single one of them and get 20,000 standing ovations. But put me at a dinner party with five other people and I'm gone. I'm going to be in the back bedroom playing with the cat even if I even show up. <laughs> it, it is unbelievably paradoxical and you know or, or or you know to my trainer make sure you call me at 5 a.m so i'm up and go to the gym and he calls me like, why the hell are you calling me i didn't tell you you know don't call me that's rude you know we need it but we don't want it um what's the line from uh, devil's advocate look but don't touch touch but don't taste taste don't swallow you know and, and we're constantly jumping through these hoops and and people with that adhd don't understand that i mean my <laughs> my wife my ex-wife i'm still very good friends with she'd come home from her day She'd de-stress for a little bit. She'd give me a hug. She'd come in. She'd ask me about my day. I'd come home before I even took off my jacket. I'm cornering her in the in the kitchen going, oh, my God, this is the day I had. You're not going to believe this. Blah, 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 blah. Not asking her about her day. Not doing it because in my mind, I'm that jacked up. I'm that wired. And everyone else should feel that same way. And it took years to, to get through that. Years of therapy, years of you know, my marriage not working. And now I'm fortunate. I have a kid who understands me and I understand my daughter. And I also have a girlfriend who gets me and has no problem with saying, okay, you, you need to breathe and we're going to get through this, but you need to take a breath. Okay. Take another breath. <laughs> and so it, it's a special kind of brain. And the yeah. thing about it is that one out of every seven to eight people have that special kind of brain. So if you, that means a lot of people are dating and married to and having kids with people who don't have those kind of brains and vice versa. And there's a huge disconnect. And the irony is that how do you tackle a partnership, a business, a love interest, or whatever, when each of you have completely different cognitive talents? Yeah. And, and that, there's a lot of work there that still needs to be done. And it's, it's what's led me to my sort of latest world where I'm teaching companies how to understand these and how to deal with this. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there are tremendous uh, – the, the Rand Corporation – I just did a phenomenal report, an 80-page report on neurodiversity and national security. Hmm. Mossad in Israel has an entire division full of neurodiverse spies and analysts because they have a different way of looking at things. Yeah. If we don't start hiring, both in business and the professional world and national security, whatever, and intelligence, we're going to fall behind. You have to understand that there are different ways of thinking. Yeah. I mean, think back to uh, the movie, what, about a decade and a half ago, Beautiful Mind. You know, just the way yeah. he was able to visualize mathematical formula. Yep. Um, you know, and, and you, you mentioned that seven out of eight of us are neurodiverse. It makes me think, is there really neurotypical? I mean, we're all atypical in some way. Well, and, and the, go ahead. The, I'm sorry. The other, the other big issue is that we spent so much, you know, our, 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 our life on this earth as human beings is, you know, if you plot it out from the start of the earth to like now, we've been here for like, if, if, if the start of the earth to now is like 24 hours, we've been here for about a, a second and a half. Right. Right. And, and in that second and a half, we spent 
99.9999% of that second and a half hunting. Hunting for our food. Only about 1,200 years ago did we discover farming. And once we discovered farming, all of a sudden we didn't have to hunt. And so all of a sudden we didn't have to get our dopamine all the way up to go catch a woolly mammoth or whatever and have food for a month. Now we sit on our ass and order DoorDash. <laughs> well, that's a form of hunting. Well, but Especially it when you're trying point. to track your guy down is why isn't he here yet? <laughs> but how does that – think about what that does for us in terms of where our brain chemistry goes. Our brain chemistry isn't, gonna, isn't just going to change in 1,200 months because we want it to. It's going to take a lot longer than that. And so you said this about your daughter. It's kind of like forward motion. Forward motion is absolutely thrilling. Absolutely thrilling. But because forward motion is so thrilling, even if you stopped, not going backwards, but stopped, it feels like you're going backwards. Yeah. And so that becomes a really tough time. So, so for instance, times like now when, you know, my speaking was entirely almost, it wasn't put on hold. It was, it was tremendously virtual and I did really well. Problem was, is that my pipeline is all those people that come up to me after my speech, who I give my business card to that stopped during COVID. So now I'm just rebuilding that. Right. And so it's a lot slower. You know, I used to be on the road, what? Three days a week, four days a week. Now I'm home a lot and looking at my dog. You know, daughter's in school. I'm sitting at home, I'm working. There's the dog. And it gets to the point where I feel like I'm going backwards. I know I'm not. I'm still making tremendous progress. But because I am not as forward as I was, I feel like I'm going backwards. And that is the absolute worst feeling in the world. Yeah. Well, and you, you couple that with uh, the world that we have lived in over the last decade and a half or so, where social media is everywhere. Notifications are constantly barraging us. There's, there's this incentive to constantly be distracted by something and, and always putting our energy somewhere because you've got that deep-seated uh, evolutional energy that you talked about, that drive to hunt we got to put it somewhere, right? And I think that we spend too much time running away from ourselves. And what you we talked about in the last 10 minutes or so, or 10 minutes ago, was really about incredible self-awareness. And I think there are so many obstacles for us to slow down and focus on ourselves first, because that's what enables us to be better team members, better partners, better founders, as we drive forward. And my concern is that too many people are running away from what they really need to focus on to be successful. People are running away from it and you're 100% right. And the reason they're doing that is because it doesn't, it doesn't fit the norm. It doesn't fit the mold that society has given us. I, I always tell the story about the baboons. You put five baboons into a cage. A zookeeper puts five baboons into a cage and then the next day he takes a thing of bananas and puts them, ties in the top of the, the cage bars. And puts a ladder in the, in the cage. About 20 minutes later, one of the baboons looks up, sees the bananas, sees the ladder, puts two and two together, climbs the ladder, starts eating the bananas at the top of the ladder. He's very, very happy. As he's eating the bananas, the, fire, the zookeeper turns a fire hose on the other four baboons, drenching them with ice cold water. They have no idea. They're like sitting there going, what the hell, right? And the next day, same thing. Puts another thing of bananas, same baboon runs up, the other four get hit with the fire hose. Third day, the baboons put, realize that they're getting hit with the fire hose because the first baboon is, is climbing the bananas. So he goes to the bananas and the other four baboons pull him down and beat the crap out of him. No one gets hit with the fire hose. Next day, the baboon who would go up in the bananas realizes he can't because he's going to get beaten up. 
So no one goes up there and the bananas just sit there and rot. But a week later, no one's gone for the bananas. So the zookeeper takes out a baboon and replaces it with a new one, who immediately goes to the bananas and immediately gets the shit kicked out of him. Day after that, he replaces another one, same thing, another one, same thing, another one, same thing, another one, same thing. Now, there are five baboons in the cage, none of whom have ever been hit with cold water, yet none of whom go for the bananas because they know if they do, they're going to get beaten up. They don't know why they're going to get beaten up. They know they will. So they don't go for the bananas. What's the moral of the story? Well, that's just the way we've always done it. We are in a society that prizes and praises. That's just the way we've always done it. Why are there rows and, and, and columns in, a, in every classroom? Why do the kids sit in rows and lines, straight lines? Because 150 years ago, you only had one-room schoolhouses, and that's exactly how kids learned. It was the way you could fit the most number of students into one classroom. That doesn't work today. And people who are neurodiverse... I don't want to say they understand that, but they are the ones who say, well, why can't we do it this way? What's, wor- what's wrong with trying? Because we've been told so many times, no, we're going to go do it. The universe is finally starting to wake up that this is the way to get us uh, to, to advance the world, really, to advance the universe, to create greater things. You're going to tell me that the founders of this country, let's go over there and start a new, new government. It'd be fun. Didn't have ADHD. Come out to the coast. We'll have a, few laughs. have a few laughs. Exactly. <laughs> so the whole premise of how things how things changed and became different are all because of the neurodiverse brains. Again, we just didn't call them like that. Back then we called them heretics. So it, it strikes me that there is a challenge here because, you know, there's this idea of conditioning and looking to fit in with the way things have been done. At the same time, we've got neurodiverse people who are looking at things differently, trying to do things differently. And you talk about working with corporations to, to harness neurodiversity, how do you take what could inevitably be chaos? Because uh, neurodivergence means that there are many people that are divergent from each other and from the system. How do you actually harness all that and bring it in and make it usable to head in a particular direction? Well, neurodiversity is the great, um, is the great diversity because it, neurodiversity is the diversity that encompasses all other diversities. You might be... A woman of color. You might be LGBTQ. You might be cis male. You might be whatever, and you can still be neurodiverse. Right? So neurodiversity truly encompasses all the diversities. And because of that, there are boundaries that you have to put together. You can't put, you can't be neurodivergent and hire someone neurodivergent to do your schedule. You're gonna do absolutely nothing. <laughs> My assistant is the most neurotypical person you'll ever meet. And I thank God for that every day. She took away right access to my calendar about 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. I went to put something on my calendar when I, like six months after I first hired her and it wasn't working. I'm like, man, can you figure out what it is? I said, no, it's working fine. You just don't have access to it. Because um, when you want to do something, you tell me. Email me and I'll either put it in the calendar or tell you no. I'm like, why? And that's kind of rude. She goes, well, you booked two dinners on the same night. Like Megan, okay, anyone can make that mistake. It's not a mistake. She interrupted me. She goes, you booked them on separate continents. You're, you're done. <laughs> I'm taking away the keys. And for 15 years, I haven't been able to book my own schedule. And that is the greatest, greatest thing because she does it better than me. Right? I mean, you're, ta- you're talking to the guy who got his first international keynote gig in like 2003 and was totally psyched. He was going to, going to Singapore. Right? And they paid me like 10 grand. And out of that, I had to pay like six grand for a ticket. I was going to make $4,000. And this is amazing. This is the most money ever. And um, 
And back then it was. I booked my ticket three months in advance. I go to the airport the day. Go to check in. Go to Singapore. Book the go, Okay, you going to Singapore? Yeah, I'm going to Singapore. Can't wait. Okay, because, sir, you booked the ticket to Shanghai. Oof. And I went, right, going to Singapore. And she goes, and you booked the ticket to Shanghai. And I was so shocked that I actually looked at the gate or the, the, the person at the front desk at the airport. And I said, well, okay, are they, are they close? Can I rent a car? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, they're about 3,000 miles away. Most of that's over water. Would you like me to price you another ticket? And, um, yeah. That was so my, my my first international keynote. I think wound up costing me like fifteen hundred bucks. So, <laughs> it's, it's, well, you know what you're good at, right? You know what you're not good at, and you do it that way. That's why you, when you want a team, you want a team where most, you know, good number of people are neurotypical. But you want those brilliant neurodiverse people who can come up with the great ideas, but have the neurotypical people to rein them in. So you don't go on a whim and say, okay, let's change the entire direction of the company. Well, maybe the company does need changing, but maybe that's not the right way to do it on a whim. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's really about recognizing the talent of others and assembling them in a way that you see them being of the most use. And, and part of that, I think, and this is hard for a lot of founders, uh, because just like with your bathroom reference, um, a lot of founders are good at starting things but not at sustaining things. And there's a difference between a visionary genius and an operational genius. And it takes incredible self-awareness to look at yourself and go, you know what? I, I, I founded this thing. I love it. I love what it does for people, but I'm not the person to run it. How, how do you counsel people who are in that situation to emotionally disconnect for the sake of, uh, the, the project, the business, the, the effort. If the company or the thing you're creating, if you had all wanted to succeed, you have to realize this is simply part of life. The same way that a founder wouldn't bore themselves with something like, um, I don't know, I don't know, uh, payroll or something in the very beginning that, you know, that they, that they'd hire someone to do, right? Not every founder is an accountant, right? So you'd hire someone to do accounting, whatever. It's the same thing. In this situation, I know what I'm good at, and if I want whatever I'm building to succeed, then I have to do it, and I have to understand that I'm good at these things, and these are the things I can do, and there are some things that I'm not. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's akin to your your calendar reference. Exactly, there. exactly. Except, you know, writ large. So I'm, I'm interested, your, your latest book is one that delves a little deeper, a little closer to the origins. It seems autobiographical in nature, but I think it's designed to help a whole new generation grapple with being different and being okay with that. Tell us about The Boy with the Faster Brain. The Boy with the Faster Brain was written for one purpose and one purpose only. It was written so that no child will ever have to feel as broken as I did growing up. I don't think that people who are not, who are not neurodiverse, who never dealt with this, they don't understand what it's like to be told you don't know how to learn, right? To be told you're broken, to be told you're different. And so being able to help people and help children to understand they're not broken was really the purpose of this, this book. It's basically, it's, it, it, it talks about 10 year old Peter who grew up uh, getting in trouble in school all the time until one day, um, he went to a feelings doctor and the feelings doctor said, yeah, you know, your, your brain is a little different. It goes a little too fast and that's great. You want to go fast, but you have to learn how to drive it. Cause if you drive a regular car and then one day you're going to really fast sports car and you're driving like a regular car, you're going to crash. Right. 
And so here's how to drive your brain faster so the kid learned, people learned what to do. It is autobiographical in the respect that I learned it, but I learned it at 30-something, right? Peter's fortunate enough to learn it at 10. And my goal is to help kids um, not have to spend the next 25 years in therapy undoing the belief that they're broken because that's what I had to do. I think that that we are a society, like I said, that is is massively shifting towards a neurodiverse world. There are a lot of kids every year. Kids are getting diagnosed more and more. And ironically, so are parents because parents get diagnosed and they go, um, wow, that, that a kid gets diagnosed. The parent goes, wow, that sounds like me, you know, and the parent gets diagnosed for the first time at 30, 40, 50. So the key really is to understand that all different, all brains are wonderful and how they work differently is what makes them unique. And so the boy with the faster brain is designed to show that and to showcase that everyone can do very, very well, um, regardless of what their brain is. They just need to understand how to use it. And, and like that diagnosis, it's written for children, but it is uh, easily uh, able to be enjoyed by adults as well. Oh, no um, question. I mean, that's what, that's what Faster Normal was for. But then again, the follow-up to that. And again, the follow-up to that was, was Boy with Faster Brain. I've been, people have been telling me to write Boy with the Faster Brain for six years. <laughs> but, you know, ADHD. I wrote it in two hours uh, last year on a plane. <laughs> Just took me six years. You know? And it's illustrated too. It is completely illustrated. I found a wonderful illustrator out of Brazil who did just such a wonderful job. I think it's wonderful. Well, I bought a copy for my daughter, and uh, I've been enjoying it with her as well. We go back and we revisit it, and I think it, uh, it's opened her eyes. And she is, she's nine, almost ten, just like your daughter, um, and, and just at this carefree mode right now before that uh, tween and teen peer pressure starts to uh, fold in. And I'm hoping that she continues to grasp onto that to realize that uh, neurodiversity is is okay and uh, i have you to thank for that peter thank you it means a lot it really does so if people would like to book you for a speech or for uh consulting or whatever where do they go how do they find you so my entire life is at shankman.com and my email is peter at shankman.com i answer all my own email I even answer my own phone. That's the one thing Megan does. I never, I never let Megan take away from me is I do answer my own email because I think that it's just required. You know, if you're going to talk to talk about customer experience and things like that, you damn well better be answering your own phone. So um, yeah, petershankman.com. I'm at Peter Shankman everywhere but Twitter because I, I can't do Twitter anymore. It's not a good place. But um, everywhere else, at Peter Shankman, Instagram, Facebook, tw- uh, 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 threads, you name it. And if people call you. Will they still get yakety sacks? Sadly, no. When I switched from Verizon to T-Mobile, I lost my ring back tone. But yeah, I did have yakety sacks for about eight years. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Peter Shankman, thank you for being on Timeless Leadership. Uh, pleasure was mine. Thanks so much, man. Well, there's a lot to take in there. And I know Peter speaks at a very fast pace. So if you need to go back and listen to it again, maybe put it on half speed. I don't know. I would recommend it. I hope in the week ahead that you slow down and take stock of how you inspire others to learn more, dream more, do more, and become more. Because that's what a timeless leader does. I'm Scott Monty. There's so much to learn. <laughs>